Hopefully caught what he was singing. Uh, we're in Isaiah chapter 40. He's singing verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. You heard him say, says the Lord. The Lord says, comfort, O comfort my people. He says in verse 2, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway to our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain be filled uh, filled be made low let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley then the glory of the lord will be revealed and all the flesh will see together and the mouth of the lord has spoken that's basically what he was singing um so the first scene is this certain comfort and, and basically what we have isaiah is split into two different parts there's Chapters 1 through 39, which is part 1, and then chapter 40 through uh, 62, I believe, is the second part. And the first part is really, if you ever read Isaiah the 1 through 39, it's mostly about judgment. Judgment on many, many different people. And then the second part is really the coming res- restoration, or the coming grace that will be given to his people who are about to be sent into exile. I'm talking about the coming Messiah, the, the coming Christ. So, when we get to into, into chapter 40, let me just start in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 1, that basically the prophet is saying that they have already revolted, that God's people, Israel and Judah, have revolted. They've acted corruptly. They've abandoned the Lord. He even says they are like Sodom and Gomorrah. He says you're like Sodom and Gomorrah, and he is about to judge them just like he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. In Isaiah chapter 10, he says he's going to send an instrument of his judgment, which is the Assyrian Empire. He says, I send it against a godless nation. Remember, he's talking about Israel. He's not talking about Egypt. He's not talking about the Babylonians or the Persians. He says, Israel and Judah are a godless nation. They have revolted. They have acted corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. In Isaiah 39, it says that they have been, will be, that Judah will be carried to Babylon, that that the sons, the royal sons of Hezekiah and the kings of David, those sons will be taken to Babylon. They will be taken away from their homes and taught to be princes of Babylon. Like we think of David and Meshach and Abednego, these men who are in the royal courts of the king of David, and now they are in Babylon. So that judgment is coming, and, and, and judgment will be put upon them. They will be harshly judged by God. Very dark language from 139. Very little expressions of hope. But then we get into chapter 40. He talks about comfort. 
And who's the one saying comfort? It's God who's saying comfort. Comfort my people, says the Lord. There's this assurance of forgiveness and grace that God's people are given. After judgment, after, after statements and promises of judgment, then God says and assures them forgiveness and grace. So God's greater purpose here is not just to judge. His greatest purpose is redemption. God declares it. Not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, but God declares redemption here. He says, says your God, your God. I am your God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am your God. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who gave you the law. I'm the God who gave you the land. I am your God. I have a covenant with you, and I, your God, will bring you redemption. There's a covenant relationship between God and his people, and they have broken his covenant. And they will be judged because of their unrighteousness, because of their sin, because of their idolatry. But God is still promising grace and redemption. He still has compassion for his people. And the bigger point here is that God's not just the covenantal God of Israel. That's the covenant of Moses. We remember the covenant of Abraham. God made a covenant with the whole world that his people will be a blessing to all the people. So God is going to bring comfort and redemption to all the world. Even the Babylonians and the Syrians and the Egyptians, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. God is a comfort for the world. This is God's character. God is a holy God. God is a righteous God. He does not, he's not a God that blindly looks over idolatry and sin. He's a jealous God. And he's jealous for his people. But yet he's a God of love. He's completely present, not partial or separated. He's a God of holiness and the God of love at the same time. He doesn't take off judgment and holiness and go, I'm going to be loved today. Then tomorrow I'm going to be judgeful. I'm just going to go back and forth. You don't know how I'm going to be. God is fully love. He's fully holy. He's not partial in any way. He's showing his love and his judgment at the same time. What does he say here? It's a beautiful passage. He says, In verse 2, your iniquity has been removed. He says your iniquity has been removed. The warfare is over. She has received atonement. Her hard service has ended. God has acted. The means of comfort is solely the activity of the Lord. The God's the one that will bring restoration. God is the one that will bring redemption. Not themselves, not their works, not their deeds. They're unable to redeem themselves. They're unable to, to bring salvation to themselves. Only God's actions and activity will bring salvation. Look at the language that uh, Isaiah says. says, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Some would say this is talking about John the Baptist. I don't think it's talking about John the Baptist. I could be wrong, right? But what I'm thinking is what's going on here is this idea that God is the one coming, not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not bringing comfort. It's Christ Jesus. It's the Lord that's bringing comfort. God is the one coming for salvation. He says, smooth the way for me. Make the dev- make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. It seems like God, the God from Mount Sinai, the God who gave the law, the God who caused the mountains to rumble and fire is coming across the desert and he's coming to his people to bring salvation. The glory of the Lord will be revealed as verse 5. That God's manifestation of his absolute reality, the, the God that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, that the whole 
earth, the whole world is full of his glory. This, this one whose train fills the temple. Who then, Isaiah was, uh, his, he, he called himself, I am unworthy to be in your presence. I am unworthy to be here. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. For I have seen the Lord. And what does God do in that story? He puts the coal in his mouth and cleanses him of his sin and all of, of all his unrighteousness. The glory of the Lord, the, the full glory of God is coming and he will share his glory. He will reveal his glory to comfort and redeem. This comes from the mouth of the Lord. The truthfulness and the authority of God. None of this stuff is a lie. This isn't a this isn't a, 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 a an empty promise. This is a promise that will be fulfilled by God, and it will be fulfilled through His Son Jesus Christ. This is a promise of salvation in the Messiah. That the Messiah was perfect. He was holy in every way. He fulfilled the law in every way. So that He was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect <coughs> Lamb, the unblemished Lamb. Sacrifice. The Son of God presented himself as a servant. He laid his life down on the cross willingly and died to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins and for our redemption. That is what brings us comfort, as what Isaiah is saying here. The ultimate comfort, the ultimate revealing of God's glory is Christ on the cross. When we see Christ on the cross, we see God on the cross. We see God, the God man, laying his life down so that we may be redeemed and saved. That's scene number one. Scene number two is the shaker of the universe. This is from Haggai chapter two, verse six through seven. And I want to play this song during Christmas Messiah because it, there's a change in the, in the music here. the music changes here it's this less um talking about the comfort of the lord coming it's the, the music changes it gets fast it gets darker actually and there's a section in this in the music where the music becomes a lot darker so if you're listening to an opera you would be a scene that was very dark talking about judgment or talking about the wrath. And, and what we have here is this entrance into there's more to the coming of Christ than simply just comfort. And Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, it says, Or thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and also the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. 
shaking is obviously a term when we think about earthquakes. We think of some type of traumatic experience where there's a shaking going on. Even if someone shook us unexpectedly, is that something that we welcome? Is that something that we're excited about? We're eating, it's a certain it's not some it's shaking. We when we read this text, we, we kind of get an idea, we kind of get a, an imagery of what's going on here. We think of the shaking of creation itself, we think of the flood event, right? We think of the Exodus event, we think of the earthquake and the plagues on Egypt. This cosmetic scope of the shaking. The, this, that all the earth, all the universe, all the heavens and the seas will shake. This, talking about this state of the kingdom, the state of the temple, the, the context of the passage is talking about the temple of the Lord. The temple will be shaken. The, the kingdom will be shaken. We think of Matthew chapter 23, 37 through 24, where Jesus is talking about the temple, and he says that the temple will be destroyed. He said that you will not see this temple the way that it is. As he's walking into Jerusalem, as he's we're about to go into to be crucified by the Romans, the temple of the Lord, this kingdom of Israel will be shaken. And Christ will be the means of this shaking. He will be the instrument of this shaking. We think of the shaking of Mount Sinai when the mountain, again, like with an earthquake, it was on fire. This new covenant that was being presented to Israel. Christ will bring in a new covenant, a new kingdom, a new temple. The crucifixion of the mind. When we think about Jesus' crucifixion itself, what happened at the crucifixion? The earth shook. There was an actual earthquake that happened during the time of Christ's crucifixion in Matthew 27 51. The darkness covered the land when Christ was crucified. Christ's coming shakes the world. It shakes the universe itself. And it says when, it was, when the world is shook, that God's glory will fill the house of the Lord. What is going on here? What glory? This temple that's being discussed here is the insignificant temple. It's the temple that happened after Solomon. The Solomon temple was destroyed and now the exile Jews are rebuilding this temple and it's not anywhere near as great as Solomon's temple. The temple that is being discussed here is talking about the Christ Jesus when he comes, when he dies, when he lays his life down, that those who trust in Christ will be a new temple of the Lord. We think of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 16, 2 Corinthians. Before I read that, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, since I'm passing it. 3, 16 through 17. Do not know that, that you do not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. The temple of the Lord discussed here is those who trust in Christ, the one who trusts in the one who came to bring us comfort and redemption. He shakes the universe. He shakes the kingdom. He shakes the temple. And we are now presented as temples of the Lord. You know that you are a temple of the Lord. You know, as we gather together as one believer, with believers, we are temples of the Lord. That The Holy Spirit dwells within us. Hence why God says be holy, because the temple of the Lord is holy. And you are a temple of the Lord, so therefore be holy. Going into holiness, um, Handel's Messiah continues in Malachi 3, 1 through 3, talking about being purified, that the, the one who's coming will be a purification. 
like fire. Verses 1 through 3, for I, before I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he when he appears? For who, he is like a refiner's fire and like full, fuller's caps. He will sit uh, as a smelter and purify of silver, and he will pure the sons of Levi and refine them and of gold and silver, so that they may present, be presented to the Lord, Lord offering and righteousness. But Christ's coming, the Lord's coming, who can endure the day of his coming? We never think of that when it comes to Jesus. The baby sitting in the manger, we should be scared of him, we should be scared of his coming. We think of Christ, the messenger of the covenant. He will transform people, right? He will transform his people into a holy community. That general worship, genuine worship will be offered to God. There will be spiritual renewal. That God will cleanse people. That he will transform people. Uh, didn't preach that um, light collective this week on Ephesians chapter 4. What a great passage in verse 17. But this is what's going on, right? God, Christ Jesus, transforms people. Uh, verse 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the fertility of their mind, but being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life former manner of life lost my place that in reference to your former manner of life you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and that you be renewed in your spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth Christ shakes the universe. He transforms us. Christ Jesus, the one who was in the manger, who lived and died and rose again and sent into heaven, transforms the people that interact with him and follow him. This is who you are. This is you are you're defined by God. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you are no longer like your old self. You are now a new self in Christ Jesus. You've put off the old man, you've put off the old woman, you've been a new man and woman in Jesus Christ. You've now been put on righteousness and truth, no longer unrighteousness and lies and dishonesty. Christ purifies us. Christ refines us in his coming. So we're struggling who we are. Who are we? What, who, how do I find happiness? Who am I? You should probably start with Jesus, not with yourself, because Christ purifies us. He redeems us. The last scene, the great light and darkness, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to play for you the last, last song.
the music kind of changes. It starts off pretty dark, but then kind of it moves, and there's this 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 transition. If you notice, this this great people walk in darkness, but then they have seen a great light. The next song after that is for unto us a child is born. The song, the music starts to uplift. And there's a sense where there's a change from the darkness, the negativity, and then the moving to the light and to the a child is born and joy has come. The people have been promised judgment. They've been promised judgment by the by God that they are going to be judged for their sins, for their idolatry. He even says in Isaiah chapter 8, you devise your plans, right? I promise that someone's going to come and is going to judge you. You devise your plans but they're going to fail. Like you, you devise your strategies and your alliances, but realize I'm declaring you will be judged and it's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no proposal that you can set out that will prevent this from happening. You can exalt your mediums and your spiritualists, but they will, whatever answers they give you, even if it's positive, they're just lies. I am going to bring judgment. There's nothing you can do about it. And what does he do after he says all that? In chapter nine, he says, a people walk in darkness. You've been driven into darkness. He says at the end of chapter 8. There's darkness and anguish and distress. They've rejected the wisdom of God. They've rejected God himself. They're worshiping other idols. They're allying, making alliances with, with godless nations as their, as, their, as their source of salvation, not God himself. They're enraged. They hate God. They're sick and tired of God. They're like what, what the psalmist, what Paul says in Ephesians 2. They're children of wrath. They cannot stand him. They're driven into darkness. They're driven into anguish. Ephesians 2.12, they have no hope. They have no God. But what does it say? It says the people who walk in darkness, who walk in anguish, who walk in distress, have seen a great light. They will see a great light. They will be glad. It says that you shall increase your gladness in verse 3, that you shall be glad in God's presence with the gladness of harvest. And men will rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you will be break the yoke of their burden, the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, as is the battle of Median. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle turmoil and cloak rolled in blood was, will be burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to his increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness, for then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You walk in darkness. You walk in anguish, you walk in distress, but you will see a great light, and that light will bring you joy. That light will bring you gladness. Jesus says in John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The result of the light is joy for, for those walk, who walked in darkness. That, 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 that the light will break the yoke of their burden. He even uses the story of Judges chapter 6, right? You remember the story of Gideon and the 300? What a great story, right? If you were a Bible story when you were a kid, man, that was like the best story. Like, you know, like Gideon like had his 300 men. You know, they talk about the Greek 300. Come on, man. These 300 are far better. They didn't even use swords and won the battle. Like, that's the coolest thing ever. 
Judges chapter six and Judges chapter seven. If we realize that they were they were um they were seven years in slavery basically to the Medians, and they were brought pretty low. It even says in Judges six that they would like they would go, they would grow their pro, uh, their crops and the Medians would burn it down. They would they would kill all their their uh, their livestock and all their herds. The Israel was brought as low as low can get, and then God redeems them through Gideon's three hundred, and that yoke was broken. And joy from God's redemption of that was the result of this. And he said, using that story of Israel's past to show that, that they will again go into darkness, they will again go into anguish, but God will send a great light who will bring them redemption. And we can think about this in our own lives about being in darkness. We're all in a fallen world. We're all uh, we all sin. We're all under the 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 the, the, the we all fall because of our, our sinful flesh. We all have wickedness in our hearts. We understand this description of anguish and darkness. And some of us have yet to see the great light. Some of us have yet to see Christ Jesus. And we see that the one who is promised is this child will be born. Okay, so he talks about yoke being, being broken from darkness. And then he presents a child as the means of this salvation. A child? That peace will be brought through a child? How laughable, Right? How laughable to bring a child to be the, re- the means of redemption. That, that this child will be human and divine. He will be God's deliverer from, the, from their darkness and oppression and slavery to sin. A child. God is strong enough to overcome darkness by becoming vulnerable and transparent and humble. By being a child. By taking on the form of a servant. God uses the foolishness of this world to to redeem and destroy the power of darkness. He uses a child. God manifests his presence with us as a child is born. God comes to us as a child. He came to bring us gladness. He came to bless us. He came to bring us joy through a child. How ridiculous. And this child is not just He's a wonderful counselor. The depth of wisdom are unmatched compared to him. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. This child is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. A child is called an everlasting father. A father who actually comes to the child and actually lays his life down for us. What a father do we have? An everlasting father. A father that is forever with us. Not just sometimes with us or when it's convenient He's always with us. He's the Prince of Peace. He brings peace. He establishes peace. He reconciles us with God. He reconciles us with each other. If you want to talk about issues in the world, the only way issues are going to be reconciled is by God. Because God saves people and transforms people. When people are transformed by Christ, people are reconciled. He's the final king, the justice and righteousness. He is the final king. He is the everlasting king. And the last statement I want to end here is the zeal of the Lord of hosts. It says here in verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Because all of this that I've been talking about from the beginning is all about God's jealousy. God is so jealous for you. When you think about jealousy, oh, God is jealous for his own glory. Yeah, yeah. No, he's jealous for you. The reason why the Ten Commandments are presented the way they are, he said, don't worship any of the gods. It's not because he's like, well, I'm jealous of other gods, and I don't want you to worship them because they're, I, I, I want all my stuff. No, he doesn't want you to worship those gods because they don't exist, and they're not good for you. And he's jealous for you, and he wants you to be satisfied in him because that's the only way you're going to be satisfied. 
And so this is all about his zeal for you, his jealousy for you, his concerning concern for the other's best and an unwilling an unwillingness that anything should hurt or destroy another. He does not want you to fall into darkness. He wants you to be satisfied. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be joyful. And you're only going to find that in Christ. It's all about that. And so we have found ourselves in him. You will never find yourself. God doesn't rest until he's restored us to himself. And you will never find yourself. You will never be happy outside of Christ. You will go your entire life buying things and getting jobs and getting other things, thinking it's going to make you happy. It will never make you happy. Only in Christ will you be satisfied. He will accomplish this, it says. He has revealed himself. Find him, you will find yourself. It even says in Acts 17, when Paul's talking to the people in Athens, he's saying, you have this, this, this art altar to the unknown God. You're worshiping this God that you're hoping, like you don't, want to, you don't want to be rude to him or offend him, even though you don't know him. He is the God who set all of life in motion. He is the God who gave you breath. He is the God who gave you life. He is the Lord, and to know him is to know yourself. And he has revealed himself as a child. He has revealed himself as a servant. He didn't exploit his divinity when he was on earth. He didn't exploit it for his own gain. He he humbled himself as a form of a servant and laid his life down on a cross for you. This is the child that's being introduced here. This is the child that was promised. This is the child that will bring us comfort. This is the child who will bring us gladness. He is the child who will transform us like fire. Worshiping him leads to gladness and transformation and to comfort. And you will have none of these outside of Christ. That's Christmas. That's the Christmas story. This is the great advent, the coming of Christ, who only bring, who brings us comfort and transformation and gladness. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this. Lord, I thank you for Christmas. I thank you, Lord, for Christ Jesus who's a child. I mean, he came in human form. I mean, he was human in every way. I love the passages in Matthew when it says that, that he was born of Mary. It wasn't some like Terminator moment where he just kind of fell on the earth. But he was born through Mary, Lord. He was a child. Yet he was the son of God. He was the king of kings and the Lord of lords the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace. And the government shall rest on his shoulders, Lord. And Lord, if there's anyone here that is really struggling with this finding myself, who am I? Where do I belong? Why do I exist? What will make me happy? How do I feel satisfied? They're searching for it in all the wrong places, Lord. They're searching for it in education and knowledge. They're searching for it with money. They're searching for it in relationships. They're like Solomon who looks at all these things and says, fertility, they're worthless. But nothing, everything outside of you, Lord, is worthless in comparison to you. And may people look to you for their satisfaction. May they look to you for knowledge about themselves. May they look to you for their happiness and joy and gladness, Lord. I pray that for them. If there's brothers and sisters here who are struggling by, with this identity crisis. They just are struggling, Lord, with who they are. And they've forgotten who they are is who they are in Christ. 
May they look to Christ, Lord. Lord, we praise you and we love you. And pray that you would change us, that we would receive gladness, that you would transform us, Lord, that you would purify us, that you will comfort us, Lord, through Christ Jesus alone. In Jesus' name, amen.